O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the, the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. This hymn that we just sang a few minutes ago, it started as a poem. It was written by uh, a Swedish poet slash preacher named Carl Boberg uh, back in 1885. And as Boberg tells the story, he was walking home one day with a, a group of friends. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this storm just swoops in. It's this powerful storm. He sees the lightning and he feels the thunder and he sees the rain all around him. And then just as quickly as the storm came, it, it went. And all of a sudden, uh, a rainbow emerged. And he went home, and he got home, and it ends up being a beautiful day at this point. He opens the window in his house, and he hears the church bells ringing outside, and he begins to write this poem, O Stored Gud, uh, which apparently in Swedish means how great thou art. I don't speak Swedish. Uh, it, it started with this experience that Boberg had, an experience of God's greatness, just revealed in nature, and, and then out of him comes what I, I call spontaneous worship spontaneous worship, an experience of God that brings out this spontaneous worship in Boberg. And I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I certainly can. Uh, a few years ago, Lindsay and I were, uh, we, we biked out to Fire Island from Robert Moses. It was Labor Day of 2016, and you, you may or may not remember, there was supposed to be a hurricane that day, and it never showed. And the day ended up actually being a really nice day, but because it was supposed to be a hurricane, nobody was there. Like, we had Fire Island to ourselves, and we're biking around, like, where you're not even supposed to bike, but we can because no one's there, and it was just, it was really just a fantastic day that we had together, and uh, as evening came, we decided we wanted to go back to the lighthouse uh, at, uh, between Fire Island and Robert Moses to catch the sunset, and we're biking toward the sunset, and the sky is just lit up with, like, pinks and purples and oranges. It's just a, the most incredible sunset I've ever seen, and then off to the south, we see there's a storm off the coast, and the rain is so thick. It's this wall that's just con completely concealing the, the horizon. And then we get there, and we stop, and we turn around, and there's just this vivid double rainbow behind us. And we're like, whoa, where are we? <laughs> this, and just spontaneous, it's like, ah, oh, how great is our God. I don't know if you've had those moments of just spontaneous worship where you're not even thinking about yourself anymore. You're just caught up in the majesty of God. And maybe you've experienced something like that where it was in nature. Maybe it was God just showing up in your life and answered prayer or God just doing something kind of powerful and miraculous in a moment where you didn't expect it or, or God just providing something that you really, really wanted at the time when you really, really wanted it. And you, just, you feel this, you sense his power and you just go, God, you're awesome. And you have this spontaneous worship. And I, I love those moments of spontaneous worship where something happens in our lives and we just can't help but say, my God, how great you are. And maybe we're not writing poems or, or you know, writing out songs or anything like that, but you know there's like this music that's coming from your soul. And I love these moments, and you've probably had many of them, but if, if you have, you also know the downside is that these moments are few and far between. I love spontaneous worship where it just kind of flows out, but it it happens, and, you know, maybe there's, like, some lingering effect for, you know, hours, days, maybe even weeks if it's, like, that profound, but eventually it wanes, and then our hearts kind of go back to whatever song they were singing before, right? 
they say that, uh, that music is the voice of the soul. I don't know who they is, but I, I think they're on to something, right? Because if, if you had to come up with a language for the soul, I think music really captures it because it's, it's not a text message, right? There's so much emotion coming from the soul that you can't capture in a text message, all right? Uh, and, and so it's music where there's, there's words and there's emotion, there's feeling, there's sensation that comes. And, uh, and we're launching this series today that we're calling... Then sings my soul. And then sings my soul because we're, we're trying to capture what is the music of our soul. And as we, we launch into this series, we're really asking two questions over the course of this series. Two questions that we'd love for you to consider. The first is, what song is your soul singing? The question isn't, is your soul singing? It's, what song is your soul singing? Because I think our souls are always singing something. And maybe, maybe you're in a place where your soul is already singing how great is our God, right? Maybe you're there. Uh, but I imagine for most, that's not our, our ste steady state, right? That's not just kind of our, our stable position. For some, maybe you're, you're singing the blues, right? Things have been rough lately, and you have your harmonica, and uh, yeah, it's full-on blues. Maybe for you, it's not quite that bad, but it's still like kind of like, you know, you got Sarah McLaughlin playing uh, on repeat in your soul, and uh, it's just sort of down and somber, and, you know. Maybe for some of you have like country music playing in your soul. Uh, I hope not, because I have nothing for you if that's where you're at. You're you're lost. You're a lost cause at that point. Uh, but you know, maybe 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 it's not like this like downer sort of music. It's more you know just kind of blah. And I imagine most of us are probably in this place where it's we're not really dealing with sorrow, but it's kind of blah. It's like elevator music going on in our soul. It's a little like Kenny G playing in the background. It's like it's not sad, but it's so boring, right? Uh, and, and so we want to give you space over the course of this series, over the course of the summer, to ask yourself and just kind of assess where you're at and say, what is my soul singing? All right? And then the second question is, how can we get our souls singing the praises of God? How can we tune our souls into these songs? And we're going to be going through hymns that have been written throughout the ages, songs that Christians have been singing, some of them for decades, some of them for centuries, because along the way, Christians have discovered that there is a lot to praise God about. And that it doesn't have to happen in uh, an hour on Sunday morning, but it can actually become a lifestyle of worship. In fact, in the New Testament, we are commanded, get this, we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And that, that seems crazy to me, at least, like rejoice in the Lord always. But if we're given that command, then at, at the very least, it has to be possible that we can get to this place that as we're going through our lives, that, that rejoicing in the Lord, that worship, can be the, the stable posture of our heart. So we're going to be asking, how can we tune ourselves in to this? And we're going to be looking at these old hymns and the stories behind some of these old hymns and, and, of course, the biblical truths that inspired these old hymns so that we could tune our hearts to sing God's praises in our everyday lives, not just here on Sunday mornings, but in the, the everyday, ordinary stuff of life. And today we're kicking off with a song, How Great, uh, How, uh, My Lord, How, how great thou art. Oh my goodness, I, I couldn't even think of the words for it. Uh, so we're starting with how great thou art. And as I was reflecting on the words of this hymn, it made me think of the story of Job. A lot of you might be familiar with Job and, and this epic story that's captured in the Old Testament. But when I think of Job, Job was somebody who was a spontaneous worshiper. All right? But Job was a spontaneous worshiper in the moments where you would never expect somebody to worship. Like, you expect Boberg to worship when the skies are, you know, there's these storms and there's rainbows and all of that. But Job 
he worships in these unexpected moments. And at the very beginning of the story of Job, very early on in the story, Job loses like all of his wealth. And then somebody comes and reports to him that all of his kids were at a dinner party together. And while they were eating dinner, the house collapsed on them. And they were all killed. And this is how Job responds to that news. It says that this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship. And said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. It says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Even when life gets kind of like mundane for me, I'm all like Charlie Brown. I'm like, da na 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 Job loses his wealth and his kids, and he's worshiping God in this moment. How, how is this possible? How could somebody, even in, in the depths of sorrow, be able to spontaneously worship? And, and don't you wish you could do this? Like, don't you wish that whatever life threw at you, that your, your natural response, not a forced response, but your natural response would still be to find joy in the Lord? That you could be unfazed? Not, not unfazed, that's, that's too strong of a word. Job felt these things. He mourned. He wept. Even Jesus mourned and wept when he saw the, the, the struggles of this world. He felt those things, right? He, we feel these things. But as Paul says in the, in the New Testament, he says, to be sorrowful yet still always rejoicing. Like, don't you wish that you could have this joy that's naturally bubbling up inside of you that is able to surpass any of the other feelings that are coming your way? And as we, we look at the story of Job, we actually find some insights in how we can get to that place. Because uh, after Job loses his wealth and his kids, things get even worse. Uh, he loses his health. His friends start like coming to him and be like, hey, Job, obviously this is your fault. You must have done something. They're accusing him. And so there's this tension and guilt and shame that's mixed in there. His wife comes and just tells him, curse God and die already. Like, uh, it's just, it goes from bad to worse. And over the next 30 chapters, Job is just kind of having this pity party a little bit with his friends, and, and that, that worshipful spirit that he started with starts to wane. And so one of the questions we want to ask is, all right, what happened there? <laughs> what happened along the way that allowed Job to go from worship to, to whining? Because when you get to chapter 29, this is the, the last thing we see Job say. He says, how I long for the months gone by. For the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me. All right? Job, at this point, is starting to go from, from this state of praising God to just a, a sense of longing. That the song of his soul is a song of longing at this point. And he's thinking about everything that he had and lost. And Job had it all. Job, he, he was wealthy, he was successful, he was well-loved and respected in the community. It even talks about, Job talks about how, like, one point, if, if they were talking, if there was a group of people talking about anything, once Job commented, nobody else said anything. Because, like, he had the final word. People just respected what he had to say. He was, like, humanity's first influencer. Like, if Job wore bell-bottoms to work, tomorrow everybody was going to wear bell-bottoms to work. Because he was just that kind of guy. He had that kind of sway. He had that kind of reputation. And then it all gets stripped away. And now Job is in this place where he just, he misses what he had. And that, that great posture of worship that he had at the start starts to wane. 
And then the Lord shows up to Job. And this is what happens. It says, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this? Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, all right? You know, we use this like, like a man as like manly. God is using it in a very different way. Brace yourself like a man. Uh, I will question you and you shall answer me. And God starts to lay in and he's like, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. I love God's sarcasm. Uh, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? God just comes in and he's like, Job, who do you think you are? And he comes in with all these rhetorical questions like, where were you when I, when I created the world and when I did this? And, you know, he asks things and he goes on. God goes on for two chapters. It's like 70 verses of these sort of rhetorical questions of like, Job, where were you? Like, Job, can you tighten Orion's belt? Can you just like reach up and grab the stars and push them a little closer together? I can. Like, have you seen the storehouses of hail and snow where I can just sprinkle them on the earth? Can you command the dawn, Job? Like, do you know who I am? God, this is for two whole chapters, and Job starts to get it. Just a little bit. Job says, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And you know what God does? He just lays back into him for two more chapters. God does not let up. He's like, Job, you think you're starting to get it? You still don't know who I am. I am greater than you could possibly imagine. And those things that you fear most in the world, those things that seem so powerful, they're so small to me. And as it starts to sink in, Job finally responds in chapter 42. He says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job gets to this place where his attention is back on, on God. I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours. You asked. You are doing these things, God. His, his focus is on God and his power. And Job is back to worshiping. So what changed? Because Job's situation didn't change. God didn't fix anything that was broken. There was nothing that was lost that's been found again. And if you read through this, God doesn't even give Job any answers. It's not like God comes in and says, hey, Job, the reason this is happening is like, see, and I got into a little, you know, betting match here. Uh, and none of that. Actually, God gives no attention to Job's problems at all. God just says, eyes on me. Eyes on me. <laughs> because what changes for Job isn't his circumstances, it's what he's considering. It's what his, his eyes are fixed on. Because our, our souls will follow, not our circumstances, right? Our souls aren't going to follow, our souls are going to follow what we're paying attention to. Where we give our attention, where, what has our consideration. And this, this is what Boberg knew. Boberg, when he was writing How Great Thou Art, he captures this in, in the first verse. He says, uh, oh, Lord, whoa, we are way ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> uh, if we can go back to the slide that has 
the lyrics to uh, How Great Thou Art. Ah, there you go. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider. Right? You notice this? He says, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider. And he says, when I consider your power, when I consider the stars and I consider the storms and I consider who you are, then sings my soul. You get this? See, Boberg knew that our souls, are, they're conditional. Like, the response of our soul. I can't just flip a switch and say, all right, soul, be happy. I wish I could. That'd be nice. Uh, but, of course, we can't just flip a switch. We can't just choose to, to realign uh, the music of our soul. They're conditional. They're based on something else. It has to be the right conditions. But we tend to think that the conditions, the right conditions are our circumstances around us. And maybe if I could fix this piece of my life, then... I could get joy back in my soul. But Boberg understood it's not about the circumstances of our life. It's about our consideration. What are the things that we're considering? It appears that this might be done. I might need your help back there with the slides. Uh, if you don't mind going to that next slide. Let me try this one. Sorry, guys. <laughs> what are we considering? What has your attention? What grips your, your focus and your, your mind as you're going throughout your day? Because whatever your eyes are focused on, that's how your, what your soul is going to take its cues from as far as joy or sadness or sorrow or depression. It, it reminds me of uh, the viewfinders. Do you guys remember these things? I, I had a viewfinder when I was a kid. I thought it was the coolest thing because, you know, when I look through it, I, right now I am looking at dinosaurs in 3D. Yeah, I don't know who took these pictures, but uh, they're remarkable, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm just able to click through, and it's so cool because they're, they're so vivid and real, and there's three dimensions, and, and as long as I have it up here close to my eyes, these things, it, it actually it covers my whole view of life, and I can't see anything except the dinosaurs that are before me. And as long as these are up, this is going to color my whole world. This is what my soul is going to follow. And what God does with Job is he pulls down the viewfinder and says, well, you need to look, look at something else. And for you, what are you considering? What's, what's filling up your viewfinder as you're going through life right now? Like maybe right now it's your job and your job just stinks and, and your boss is the worst. And, you know, they're making you go back to the office. And you're like, we were doing fine working from home. Why do you have to make me get back on the train? And they're throwing all this work at you. And, and all you can think about is, is your job and how everything's bad there. And, you know, your viewfinder, what you see in 3D is all the problems at work. Or maybe for you, it's your, your relationships. Maybe, you know, you're, you and your spouse, you've just been fighting a lot lately. And there's this tension. And, and everywhere you look, all you, you can think about is the tension that's in your marriage right now, and so it's coloring all of life, and your soul is following that. Or maybe for you, it's not your spouse because you don't have a spouse. Maybe what's coloring your world is your singleness, and you just feel like, I can't be happy until this thing gets fixed because everywhere you look, all you can think about is how you're alone, and you just see yourself through your viewfinder there in 3D all by yourself, and it's just coloring your whole world. 
or maybe for you, you, you just see the craziness that's going on in, in our world and things are changing all the time and a lot of things aren't changing for good and you see this and you're like, what's going on? Like the, the church doesn't have the influence it does anymore. And we're looking at the world through this viewfinder and all we see is what we're losing and, and our souls are going to take cues from what's filling up our viewfinder. See, for Job, for almost 30 chapters, he's looking at himself and he's reflecting on his problems. And slowly over time, what happens is Job, Job's soul, which started off worshiping, goes from worshiping to whining. Because all he can see is the problems before him. And then God pulls down the viewfinder. And this is the result. It says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. It says, therefore... I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So God comes along, pulls down the viewfinder, says, eyes on me, Job. Look at me. Look how great I am. Stop looking at all this stuff in front of you. Look at me. Look at me. And Job says, I despise myself after seeing this. Now, when he talks about despising himself, this isn't self-deprecation. It's not him saying, oh, I'm the worst. I hate myself. It's, it's, very, it's not self-loathing. It's like nothing himself like it's not like i hate myself it's like i nothing myself it's like rejecting himself it's like him noticing just how small he is how small he is or as my daughter would say how teeny tiny he is because apparently when kara was learning sizes she learned big and teeny tiny that she doesn't have small uh so everything's teeny tiny uh and, and so job he's he's teeny tiny in light of this amazing, great God who just revealed himself to him. And so if Job is teeny tiny, then of course there is nothing in Job's world. There's no problem that Job has that can be any bigger than Job, which means all of Job's problems are teeny tiny. Itty bitty. Right? And I, I want to I, I tread carefully here because I don't want to trivialize anybody's pain. Because uh, you know, I've experienced loss and it's not a small thing. There is pain in this world, and even Jesus wept and grieved over pain that happens in this world. Like, it is, it is big to us. It is big to us. But to the God that creates the universe, the God who spreads out the stars without breaking a sweat, the God who brushes death off his shoulder like a little bit of dust, like, to that God, it's teeny tiny. I'm teeny tiny. All these things, when we're looking at them through the viewfinder, they're so big. It fills my whole view. And I pull it away, and I pull out the card, and you guys can't even see what's on here. <laughs> How could something so small seem so big to us? But, of course, when we're looking at it through the, the wrong lens, it just it seems so insurmountable. Job has this encounter with God, and he sees who God is, and he sees everything in real 3D, and he says, I am teeny tiny. And my problems are teeny tiny. And God, you are great. And I am going to worship you. And not because he chooses to worship God, because it flows from his soul. It's the natural reaction to this. I love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it. He says, but all our unhappiness is ultimately traced back. Oh, <clears throat> there you go. All our unhappiness is ultimately traced back to this. That we're looking at the things that are happening to us instead of looking at this vision that is being held there before us, right? All our unhappiness is because we're looking at these things that are happening to us through our viewfinder instead of pulling it down and looking at this vision of this great God that is all around us. This is where the, the discipline of Christian meditation comes into to play. 
Christian meditation, you know, you might hear the word meditation and you might have some ideas of what that means. It's like, oh, yeah. uh, you get these ideas of Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation, Christian meditation, two very different things. In Eastern meditation, you're just trying to empty your mind. You're trying to like free yourself of all of these things. Christian meditation is not about emptying. It's about filling. It's about filling your mind with the truth of who God is and what he's like and what he's done for you. And in this, what we're doing is we're, we're pulling down the viewfinder and we're getting this image of who God is. And it can sound pretty intimidating to like meditate on something, but it's, it's really not complicated. It's really just thinking about something. I love the way one author puts it. He says, if you've been anxious about anything, you know what it is to meditate. Because <laughs> anxiety, you know, when you're just like, you can't stop thinking about it and you're thinking about the same thing from all these different angles and it's going over and over and over in your mind, that's meditation. That's all you're doing. It's just there, you're kind of doing it accidentally, probably around the wrong things. But when we meditate, Christian meditation is doing that very same practice, but it's thinking about God in that way. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Although there is one, one critical piece that we see in this story with Job, is that when God shows up, he doesn't just say, hey, Job, I'm awesome. There you go. And then, like, let him go. No, God makes Job sit in this for some time, right? Four chapters. Job isn't just dipping a toe in God's greatness. Job is, is marinating in it, right? There's time spent just turning this over, seeing God from all these different angles. And all of a sudden, he steps away, and he just has a different picture of reality and who God is. But, of course, for the 30 chapters before that, Job was also meditating. Except he was meditating on himself and his problems. In fact, in, uh, in chapter 7, uh, Job will, uh, says at one point, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. He says, I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. I find this really fascinating. This word complain, right? When, in the original Hebrew, they actually used the Hebrew word for meditate. <laughs> that Job was meditating on himself and his problems for 30 chapters. And as he was doing that, he goes from worship to whining, right? And of course, none of, none of you guys complain about things because nobody likes a complainer. It's super annoying. We don't complain. What we do is we vent, <clears throat> right? We just take complaining, we baptize it, and we say, oh, no, that's okay. Uh, but all we're doing with venting is we're meditating on the things that are before us, and we're, we're pulling up our viewfinder and saying, look how big these things are. Oh, and we're getting somebody else to say, yeah, they're so big, right? And it makes us feel better for a moment. But all we're doing is we're meditating on these problems and Christian meditation saying, no, no, no. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. And as we do this, the content of our meditation becomes critical. What we're turning our attention to about God becomes critical. And I, I want to close out uh, by giving you just a, a, few, uh, a few practical pieces of what to meditate on when it comes to the greatness of God. and his, uh, We're going to look at the greatness of God, the mercy of God, and the promises of God. You guys have uh, that slide up for me there with the greatness of God. Maybe. All right. <laughs> We're going to look at the greatness of God, the mercy of God, and the promise of God. The greatness of God, that's the, the most obvious one from the text because God just takes Job and he, he shows him, Job, look how great I am. Like, look how wise I am. Look at my justice. Can you even wrap your mind around what I can do? I have full authority and power over everything, right? 
we were at the beach yesterday with my small group, and Kara and I at one point were sitting at the edge of the water, and the, the water would just kind of come up, and there'd be these little tiny waves, teeny tiny waves, uh, that would come up, and every so often there'd be a slightly bigger one, and whenever that would happen, she's like, no, 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 I don't want the big waves, I don't want the big waves. She'd look at me. I'm like, oh, baby, I, I wish I could control the waves. I can't. Like, they just come as they are. Like, but for God, that's not true. He gets to decide the size of the waves, and he knows the size of every one. He just, he's this great, and we get to look around and, and fix our minds on the greatness of God, but not just the greatness of God. We need to look at the mercy of God as well, because if you know that God is great and he is powerful, then you will likely submit to him, but that doesn't mean you're going to worship him. It doesn't mean you're going to even like him, right? You can see God is, is great and all-powerful and be like, well, what other, what other option do I have? I guess I'm going to submit to you, but that, that might be fear-based. It might even lead to resentment, not necessarily worship, until you add in the mercy of God. And in the, the text, we see that, that Job's friends were giving him really bad advice along the way, and they were saying some things that weren't true about God. And in the end, God says he's angry with Job's friends, right? But this all-powerful, mighty God, in his anger, doesn't decide to snuff out his friends. His desire is to show mercy. And he comes to the friends, and this is what he says to the friends. Uh, can we go back? Sorry, guys, this is going to be much more complicated. <laughs> Go back to Job 42.8, please. We'll, uh, we'll take it in order. Uh, so now he says to the friends, take the seven bulls and the seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. And he says, my servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So God comes to them and God says, I want to show you mercy. This is God's idea, not theirs. They're not begging for mercy. God says, you made me angry, but I want to show you mercy. And you notice there's two things required for mercy. There's a sacrifice, and there's a mediator. And here, the bulls and the rams are the sacrifice, and Job will act as the mediator for them. Uh, and, and Job gets to experience and see how God is merciful. But we, as New Testament Christians, we get something so much better. Because in the New Testament, we see that God is still pursuing mercy. He's still the one who wants to show mercy. And he's still requiring a, a sacrifice and a mediator. Except we know that God is the one who's also providing the sacrifice and the mediator through Jesus. That God is so invested in, in pouring out mercy on you. He's so rich in his mercy that not only is he going to provide mercy, he's going to provide the means to mercy for us. And in uh, the, the version of How Great uh, Thou Art that we come to know today, it, it wasn't written by Boberg. It was actually written by Stuart Hein. Stuart Hein, he was a missionary in Russia for decades. And while he was in Russia, he actually heard a Russian translation of Boberg's How Great Thou Art. And he, he just loved it. And he ended up translating the first verse into English. And then one night, he was coming up to a house and this house, in, in, I think it was in the Ukraine, uh, as he was approaching, he heard noise coming from the house, and he was listening in, and it was people who were coming to terms with the, the grace of God for the very first time, and his mercy. And they were worshiping God and, like, repenting of their sins, and it was so loud and, like, audible, and he didn't want to interrupt, so he just sat outside the house listening to it, and as he listened to it, he, he wrote the second verse of How Great Thou Art, and it says, When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. 
God, his son not sparing. This is a line that comes right from uh, Romans 8 where Paul says, God, he's not even willing to spare his own son in pursuit of you experiencing his mercy, in pursuit of your complete joy. Like you're willing to make sacrifices to bring joy into your life. You do it all the time. Are you willing to spare, not spare your own children at that? God is willing to sacrifice his own son for your complete joy. That's how invested he is in dispersing his mercy upon you. So you have this great God who's so invested in you, in his mercy. And then we get to the promises of God. And at the, the very end of the story in Job 42:10, says, After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part, right? Job experiences this blessing at the end of his life, and it's a material blessing for Job, but for us, it's a picture of the promise that we have, that God, he is going to fix it all. Jesus says at the end of Revelation, I'm making all things new, and this all things new, it's not just giving us new things, it's actually a, a, a fixing of everything that went wrong. I love this scene at, at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is talking to Sam, uh, Samwise Ganji. And Samwise, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. And is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music. I love that scene. And Tolkien, as he was writing this, was thinking of Revelation and Jesus making all things new, that he's not just... He's not just fixing things. He's undoing all of the wrong that we've experienced, all the sorrow, all the pain, all the things that really do hurt as we look at them through our viewfinder. He's going to fix. He's going to restore. Which brings us to the final line of the hymn. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Ah, what joy will fill my heart? And as we, we meditate on these promises that all that is wrong will be made undone. And the joy that we'll experience then, we get to borrow some of that joy here and now. And what if we were to be able to take this into our everyday lives, where we're carving out time in our day-to-day -day lives to reflect on his greatness and his mercy and his promises, that everything we see is, is colored by his greatness and his mercy and his promises, and we see that he can that he desires to and he will do whatever it takes to make your joy complete.